Bump in the Night by Colin Watson. Dramatised for radio by Matthew Waters and first broadcast in 1971. The original recording of Bump in the Night was lost and the programme that follows is recorded off-air, so the sound quality is not of the usual standard. Hold your head well back and look to one side, will you? I'm just going to put some drops in your eyes. Just uh, blink them in. You didn't do this last time. Well, it's better if I can take a good look inside. That's what this stuff's for. Belladonna tincture. Mm. There we are. Five drops in each eye. Now, keep your head back a few minutes. Was it that dreadful Biggerdike man I saw in here before me, Mr. Hoole? I'm afraid it was, Mrs. Cornish. I'm surprised you allow him on the premises. His visits are fortunately infrequent. Now, uh, head back just a fraction, dear lady. That's fine. I'm just going to give you one little drop of belladonna tincture in each eye. Distending the pupil, eh, Mr. Hoole? Exactly. And I'm not to worry if I can't focus properly for an hour or two afterwards? Isn't that so? (laughs) Right you are. The effect is disturbing, but uh, temporary. Mr. Kebble. What is it, Mr. Grope? There's been an accident in Watergate Street. Oh, has there now? That's nice. I thought you ought to know for the paper. Oh, yes, indeed. The Charmsbury Chronicle is always first with the news. That bigger diet man has just driven straight into a cattle truck. He's not dead, though, more's the pity. Oh, can't say I'm surprised. Oh, I, I don't know, though. They're hardly open yet. It would have been a judgment on him if he'd been taken. Dreadful fellow, they told me. Ah, he used to bring young women into the poor bobs. Mm. March them up the stairs like a drover. Never the same ones twice. Oh, did he? Oh, there's not a doubt of it. The usherettes got to be scared to use their torches for fear of what they'd see. I used to have to search the back row of the circle before I went home at night to save the cleaning ladies the embarrassment of chancing upon evidence of his diversions. Think of that. Shocking. Oh, he's not a patron anymore. It's the television now, I expect. There's an immoral invention, if you like. I've got a story, Chief. Don't apply that loathsome expression to me, Leonard. I'm sorry, sir. And, by the way, next time you have occasion to ring me here at the office, don't say, uh, give me the desk. Muriel thought you were a firm of furniture removers. Oh. Uh, Now, then, what's this story? They've blown up the drinking fountain in Jubilee Park. They? Who's they? Russian anarchists? Women's liberation? Young conservatives? Well, the perpetrators. I interviewed the park keeper. He's married, has three children, and is an old boy of Alderson Road School. In the First World War... Uh, Never mind all that, Leonard. What about the explosion, or whatever it was? Ah, well... The outrage is thought to have taken place in the early hours of the morning. Mr Harding Mr. said... Mr Harding? The park keeper oh. said he was awakened by what sounded like a big gun going off. He thought no more of it until his arrival at the park, where he saw a jet of water arising from the ground in the spot hitherto occupied by the drinking fountain. Of this edifice, a well-known landmark in the town... Hitherto? There was no trace. Oh, what an extraordinary thing. Well, who would want to demolish a drinking fountain? Brewers. They would. Any day of the week. Have you been round to the police, Leonard? No, sir. Oh, well, never mind. I'll call round on Chief Inspector Larch myself. He might know something about Stan Biggerdike by now as well. You think the boy was telling the truth or has someone been pulling his leg? He's certainly cretinous, but he's not a liar, Mr Larch. Anyway, it should be a simple matter to verify. Some sort of explosion was reported during the night. Uh, By my father-in-law, Councillor Pointed, in fact. Uh We've not had time to look into it yet. I suppose you want to make what you'd call a story out of it. (laughs) 
A drinking fountain. You must be hard up. All part of the job. Come on, then. We'd better inspect the scene of the crime. You're Harding, are you? The park keeper? That's right. Just what has been going on here? Well, you can see for yourselves. The fountain's gone. That's all I know. Hmm. What were you doing during the night, Mr. Harding? Parachute jumping. That attitude will get us nowhere. Answer my question, will you? I was in bed sleeping. What else should I have been doing? You heard nothing? I had a damn great bang. A lot of others did too, I expect. Did you think it came from the park? I didn't think anything. I went back to sleep. I see. You had the job of maintaining the fountain, I suppose. Cleaning it and so on. That's right. Bit of a nuisance, was it? Yeah. What's that supposed to mean? That's entirely up to you, Mr. Harding. I don't think I've said anything to which you could take you exception. You as good as said I blew the damn thing up myself to save cleaning really, it. Really, Mr. Harding? <sighs> well, that'll be all. Yeah, yes, I've got work to do. For now. <laughs> and I'd be obliged if you could find a few stakes and rope the area off. We shall want to take a closer look without being trampled to death by the over-sixties club. Uh, you don't really think he did it, do you? Why not? He's a cheeky old bastard. Unless, of course, Kevall, you know who's responsible. Me, old chap. And then I was forgetting. A journalist never discloses his source of information, does he? Never. Uh, by the way, you know Stan Biggerdykes piled his car up, I suppose? Does he really? And what special reason have you to be interested? I'm interested in everything and everybody, Inspector. It's my job. Squalid, isn't it? Mm. Yes, I knew about Biggerdykes. He was taken slightly ill while driving. He'll be in hospital for a few days, that's all. No charge of any kind. Why should there be? I was practically blown out of bed last night. I rang down here to find out what had happened, and some clod tried to put me through to the gas board. That was Sergeant Werple. He probably hadn't heard anything, Father. Don't be ridiculous, Hector. It rocked the street. Surely you heard it? Not from Flaxborough, I didn't. Tuesday's my civil defence night, remember? I stay over till morning. All the same, you can take my word for it. The windows nearly came in. And all that fool could do was to spell out my name letter by letter. Yes. Oh, you ought to give him a kick up the backside. Look, we know all about that explosion. Sergeant Werple's over there now. Oh. Don't worry, he knows his stuff. Uh, are you calling in on Hilda later on? Possibly. Well, you might tell her Stan Biggerdyke had an accident this morning. Nothing serious, bent his wagon a bit. It beats me why you let that swine into your house. Why? What's he done wrong? Everything he's ever had a chance to get away with. As for allowing Hilda... Yes? Well, damn it all, Hector. My wife's friends are her own affair. And when one of them happens to be a friend of mine as well, there's really no need for you or her mother to worry. Sheepdog drives, Sergeant Werfel? Actually, no, sir. Your guess is very wide of the mark. The talk is all of an explosion, Mr. Hool, an outrage. Dear me. Look over there, sir. What do you see? Nothing. Quite so, sir. We believe it to be the work of a bomb. Yeah, wasn't there some sort of memorial there? I seem to remember when the last time I took my lunchtime walk in the park. A drinking fountain, Mr. Hool. An amenity. One pressed the lion's nose and a stream of water spurted from his jaws. It worked on the principle of Maine's pressure. Ingenious. And have you picked up anything in the way of um, clues as to the author of this outrage? These bits and pieces are about all I managed to find. A mind detector's what you need on a job like this. Hmm. They don't look too helpful, do they? They all mean something looked at properly. Try interpreting this piece. Hmm. Part of the uh, 
firing mechanism, I shouldn't wonder, sir, of the bomb, you know. That hinge, you see, would enable contact to be made. It's a suspender. Hmm? Oh, yes. So it is. Uh, pity. Ah, it could be significant all the same, Sergeant. Uh, a female bomber, perhaps. Uh, on the other hand, it may merely signify youthful nocturnal grapplings. You know, sir, I believe the fountain was a memorial, now I think about it. Subscribed by Mrs Courtney Snell in memory of Colonel Courtney Snell. I wonder if anyone had a grudge against her or a late husband. Hey, wasn't he mixed up in a lawsuit just before he died? Successful plaintiff, sir. He sued Mr Biggerdyke, the haulage contractor, for slander. Uh, that's uh, defamation of character by word of mouth, sir. Thank you, Sergeant. Uh, an impetuous man, Biggerdyke, by all accounts. He gives that impression, certainly, sir. Only this morning he impetuously drove his car straight into a cattle truck. Good Lord. Is he all right? Smashed his car, I believe. Yes, what about Biggerdyke, though? In hospital. Only bumps and bruises, though. He'll be out next week, they say. Oh. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, nasty things, cattle trucks. Of course you, uh... You know what the trouble is, don't you, sir? No. The chief inspector, he hasn't the first idea, not when it comes to something unusual like this fountain business. He's not had the education, you see. Still, uh, keep that to yourself, sir. Of course. But uh, hasn't that projectionist at the Rialto confessed to the crime yet? Joel Mulvaney? Well, no doubt he will as soon as he hears about it. But ever since he claimed to have masterminded the great train robbery, his confessions have been received with something akin to scepticism down at the station, sir. Sure, and not a word of treachery will you drag out of me. There was myself in it only, and that's the holy truth. You've not yet said why you did it, Mulvaney. Is it seriously you're asking me that? You'll be telling me next you've not heard of the organisation. Let's see if you'll say you've never heard of the organisation. Oh, yes, of course. Quite. Very well. I'm ready. I suppose there'll be a farce of a trial. Uh, no, I can't say there will be. No trial. Ah, oh, so that's how it's to be. It's the cellar and the convenient backfire of a car you'll be having in mind, Mr. Larch. You're free to go, Mr. Mulvaney. Ah, so it's the ambush after all, is it? A country lane at dead of night. I'm afraid the cellar's no good, Mulvaney. It's being redecorated. So there's been another outrage, Mr. Grope. That's right, there has. A fortnight to the day of the first one, Mr. Kebble. Right outside my house as well. Poor Alderman Berry. Decapitated. His head blown right off. Wrenched from his body. It's a bad business. A sad day for Chalmsbury. I was very fond of that statue and all it stood for. Stood for? Temperance, Mr. Kebble. Temperance. Yes. Alderman Berry was the town's foremost temperance pioneer. I'll say that for him. Do you reckon there's any connection? Connection? With what? Oh, that park business, the, the, the drinking fountain. Well, it may well be that both atrocities are the work of the self-same... Miscreant. I was talking to Mr. Kebble, Leonard. Uh, I'm still waiting for the Ferguson wedding, Leonard. Have you written it up yet? Just about to, Mr. Kebble. Good. And remember that for our purposes, marriages are not consummated or solemnised. 
And for God's sake, don't ever again describe the bridesmaids as wearing Dutch caps. No, Mr. Cabell. There was a film being shown to our patrons last week about a man unjustly convicted of someone else's crime. When he came out, he was an enemy of society and did a lot of dreadful things that were worse than the one he'd been sent to prison for not doing, if you follow me. Uh, there was some blowing up in it, if I remember. So, you see, I think the police ought to be looking for someone who may have been sent to prison for a crime he didn't commit. Well, that ought to be a lot easier in Chalmsbury than looking for all the people who haven't been sent to prison for crimes they did commit. Oh, well, of course, if you're going to... Oh, no, 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 we've got an idea, Mr. Grope. Uh, someone bent on revenge, a bit uh, unbalanced, maybe. That's the idea. Both the desecrated monuments, you will have noted, commemorated gentlemen who had been magistrates. Does that not point to a victim of a miscarriage of justice? It could well do so, Mr. Grove. Now, should there be yet another outrage, oh, God forbid, what we'll have to watch for is whether the object is another magisterial monument or representation. If so, we'll know for certain that the fellow is an ex-convict. Very neat, Mr. Grope. Uh, you've taken the brewers off your list, then? No, not at all. Ah, there's another way of looking at this business. It may be the law this fellow's got a down on, or it may be he's got a down on temperance. Good heavens. Take that drinking fountain now. A perfect model of temperance. And poor Arnold Berry. A magistrate, I grant you. But sobriety itself. No, it's quite simple. Whatever gets blown up next will tell us who the uh, <clears throat> miscreant is. A jailbird or a son of Bacchus. Pardon, Mr. Larch, but it looks like another of those bombing affairs during the night. What does? The destruction of Mr. Hool's eye, sir. What are you talking about, Sergeant Werfel? The great eye that was suspended above Mr. Hool's shop, sir. The optician. Oh. It appears to have disappeared. The glass part of the sign has disintegrated into pieces like little grains of sugar. Uh. They're underfoot for quite a way along Watergate Street. Crunchy, they are, sir. Crunchy? That is so, sir. Who reported this? Mr. Hool, sir. Well, he didn't exactly report it. He just stood under where the sign used to be and used bad language. I had to advise him to moderate it, sir, so he changed to longer words which gave less offence to bystanders. I suppose you want me to go and have a look? It might be as well, sir. It is the third Tuesday night in the last four that these events have occurred. Yes. It may be that a discernible pattern is developing, which we, uh, which you may be able to spot, sir. Very well, Werfel. Lead the way. Now, Mr. Hool, I hear you've had a spot of trouble with your eye. Don't be fatuous, Inspector. Some blackguard's blown the blasted thing to smithereens. And right now, I happen to be in the middle of a consultation. You'll have to pursue your inquiries elsewhere. I wouldn't take that uncooperative attitude if I were you, sir. The ownership of the advertisement does not give you the right to be indifferent to police investigation. Destruction of private property in a public place is a serious matter. Well, you don't imagine I blew it up, do you? In our job, we imagine nothing, sir. We seek the facts. If you attempt to elicit facts without using your imagination, that probably explains your consistent lack of success. Uh, did that sign of yours happen to be insured, sir? Oh, naturally. For £50,000. Indeed, sir. You must be very grateful that someone has enabled you to capitalise on the policy. Of course. When did you leave your shop yesterday evening? I left my consulting rooms at precisely five o'clock. And you didn't return until this morning? No. You're quite sure of that? Well, not absolutely. I am a schizophrenic, you know. I mean, half of me takes a good deal of watching. 
Perhaps it slipped away in the night. It strikes me both halves need watching, Mr. Hoole. I may have further questions to ask you later. I gravely doubt, Inspector, if I shall have either the time or inclination to answer them. Good day. There's been another one, hasn't there, Hector? Yes, Father. The best, up to now. Whoever's playing these damn fool tricks has got to be caught. The council will be furious. The whole town's up, up in, in arms. arms. Well, so it is. I'm not joking. Can't you see what an impossible position it puts me in? A chairman having to explain to his committee that his own son-in-law doesn't seem able to protect the town from a blasted bomb-throwing lunatic. He hasn't thrown any yet, Father. Oh, of course, she may do. Now, see here, Hector. Have you honestly no idea of who's responsible? Oh, so that's how it is. That's how what is? Why didn't you answer? I was trying to think who you were suggesting. Hadn't you better tell me? It has occurred to several of us that this sort of behaviour sounds remarkably characteristic of your friend, Bigger Dyke. Why on earth should you think that? Oh, come on, Hector. You know what the fellow is. Anyone who could have fixed up that horrible contraption in the ladies at the mayoress's at home last year... That was never proved. We knew, all right. Bigger Dyke may look half sloshed most of the time, but he's got a rotten streak right through. But just because he sponsored your membership... This is all rather beside the point, you know. Stan may have done some silly things in the past, but I haven't the slightest reason to suspect him of this lot. And I certainly wouldn't protect him, if that's what you're driving at. It wouldn't be the first time. And what specific occasion have you in mind? Uh, that driving case, if you must know. People talk as they will. It was said you'd given Bigger Dyke the chance to sober up before he could be examined. He asked for his own doctor. That was his right. The man was on holiday, but we weren't to know that. Well, you could have found out in less than the two hours it took you to get somebody All else. All that's been gone over. Forget it. All that black coffee was never gone over. What did you say? The coffee you got Bigger Dyke to drink when you thought no one was looking. A whole flask that Hilda had made for you. Where the hell did you get that story? You ought to know by now that nothing could be kept quiet for long in a town like this. Do you believe it? Uh, I'm not sure. But at least you should have a go at Bigger Dyke. Let it get around that you've questioned him. I might. Good. That's sensible. And Hector... I do advise you and Hilda not to see him socially for a while, not till this thing's blown over. I think you might leave me just a little discretion. You don't seem to realise what trouble you might bring on yourself and the family. The family? Well, uh, Hilda uh, and me. And dear mother-in-law. Yes, my dear wife too, of course. Come in, Hector. Thank you. Come along, Sergeant. Yes, sir. I'd like Sergeant Werfel to be present, if that's all right with you, Mr. Biggerdike. Fine with me, old boy. I'm sure the Sergeant is a source of never-ending joy. (laughs) You may be wondering why I asked if you'd be good enough to let us come and see you. Well, actually, I The fact is, I wish to ask you a few questions in connection with a routine inquiry we're making. Uh So we shall begin by stating what you doubtless know already that on three Tuesday nights this month, including last night, there have been various explosions in town, severely damaging certain pieces of property. Another one last night, eh? You don't say. I do say. And nobody has been hurt yet, but that doesn't mean we should view these things less seriously. Of course not. In the absence of more concrete information, we're obliged to question everyone whose name may happen to have cropped up in discussion of this affair. 
naturally, Mr. Biggerdike, this implies no actual suspicion on our part. We wish merely to eliminate everyone who can give a reasonable account of himself. Oh, go ahead then. Eliminate me. I imagine I need only to ask you to give some brief account of your whereabouts during the three nights in question for that to be possible, sir. I'm not requiring a formal statement, you understand. Just tell me confidentially. You're under no obligation, of course. Uh, they were all Tuesdays, did you say? Yes. Well, I'm out of town every Tuesday night. You can ask the missus. You should know that yourself, old boy. It's my club night in Flaxbury. I stay on at a pal's place afterwards. Bert smiles, he'll tell you. Well, that seems satisfactory. You can hardly be in two places at once, can you? Hardly. And the name of the club? The Trade and Hall in St Anne's Place. And this Mr Smiles? Councillor Smiles, Pewley Road. Thank you. I don't think we need to trouble you any more, Mr Biggerdyke. Oh, no trouble, old boy. No trouble. Oh, Mr Hoover. I've removed the remains of the eye-frame, which I shall have to take away for a little while, I'm afraid. You may keep it forever, if you wish, Sergeant. If the decision's rested with me, sir, I'd send it to the forensic laboratory. It might well be of forensic significance. The chief inspector doesn't go much for science, though. He says all criminals condemn themselves out of their own mouths. Does he? I suppose he didn't ask you if you knew anything that might be helpful when he came in this morning. He didn't, as a matter of fact. No. He merely tried in the clumsiest manner possible to persuade me to condemn myself out of my own mouth. I do wish he wouldn't take that line, sir. He does naturally mean to be offensive, but people aren't to know that. His methods tend to alienate sympathy, you know. It must be very trying for you, Sergeant. Not trying, exactly, sir. I just don't like to see policemen getting a name for being unintelligent. Not all of us are stupid. I'm sure not, Sergeant. Mm, you see, adhesive tape here on the framework... Now, the forensic people could probably tell us a lot from that. Really? Oh, yes. Where it was made, what batch it was in, name of the chemist it was sent to, when, all that. Oh, yes. Oh, well, into the bin. Should you have done that? The chief would never bother with it, sir. He takes a very straightforward view. Oh, he spurns empiricism. Mr. Larch spurns everything, sir. Oh, there is one thing I find puzzling. The frame that held the eye must have been some eight or nine feet above the ground. I had to fetch a pair of steps to get it down. How do you reckon our chap reached it? Hmm? Reached it? To stick his bomb on it, sir. Oh. The adhesive tape to which I alluded, adhere, means to stick. A, a tall gentleman, perhaps. An ingenious theory, sir, but I can't call to mind anyone hereabouts of seven feet or over. Even the chief inspector is only six feet seven. True. Do you happen to know who occupies the premises immediately above your shop, sir? Well, of course, they're mine. Someone could have reached over from the window above? Well, certainly, provided he got into my consulting room first. Would that be possible, sir? Perfectly. Place is by no means burglar-proof. But then, who would want to pinch a set of sight-testing charts? Perhaps another optician, sir? One not quite so well established? There's no rhyme, no reason in it, Mr. Kebble. That's what bothers me. Now, if that old man were temperance, he's not even on the bench. Oh, there go both your theories, then, Mr. Grope. Hardlines, old chap. <sighs> oh, uh, by the way, uh, poetry's your department as our resident epitaph writer, so to speak. What do you make of that? Uh, July 1st, in memoriam. The thirst that from the soul doth rise doth ask a drink divine. There'll be that dark 
parade of tassels and of coaches soon. It's easy as a sign. Does uh, that mean anything to you? No, except it's not proper poetry. Oh, doesn't seem right for in memoriam. Well, you only think that because it's not one of yours. Drink divine? Sounds like a brewer's advertisement. You aren't going to print it, are you? Naturally, it's paid for. Who brought it in? Nobody. Came by post. No name or address, but oh. a postal order. I just wondered if you knew the quotation. Seems harmless enough, but uh, we don't want to risk any double meanings. Wait a bit. It's out of some song or other. I've got it. Drink to me only with thine eyes, and I'll not look for wine. Then the thirst that from the soul doth rise doth ask a drink divine. But the rest of it, tassels and all that, well, that's not part of it. Yes, that's odd. Oh, never mind, it can't do any harm to print it. Um, now we're on the subject, I was wondering if you'd fancy publishing my latest ode. Uh, what ode is that, Mr. Grove? Ode to the River Chowl as it passes between the watercress beds and the mighty oilseed mill. It sounds like good stuff. Yes. Uh, I'll bring it in tomorrow. Oh, well, I must be off. Time to open up for the matinee. Dance of the vampires it is this week. Mm. <laughs> be seeing you, Mr. Kevill. Uh, Leonard? Yes, Mr. Kevill? What are you up to? Working on this, sir. And what is this supposed to be? I thought it'd be a good kick-off to a sort of uh, gossip column, sir, like William Hickey, inside stuff. Good God, boy! You'll have me inside if you persist in putting that sort of thing in the paper. Take it away and burn it. Do you mean you're spiking it, sir? Leonard, on a paper like ours, we have to live with the people we write about. It makes a difference. Do you know there are still three shops in Charmsbury where you can buy a horsewhip? Well, I've been most careful about names. Yes, I can see you have. All the same, I'm not sure that uh, socialite wife of police chief entirely rules out identification. Oh. You could cut out socialite. Now, let me put it this way. Chief Inspector Larch won't thank us for telling the town that his wife is to be seen at swank caravan parties, latest craze of the Charmsbury top set. Sounds like teeth. You should be jolly grateful I toned it down anyway. I don't call references to a hairy-armed mystery playboy toning down. Well, I didn't write anything about her taking her clothes off. What? Leonard, I think you'd better tell me exactly what you're talking about. Well, sir, it was last night. I thought since it was a Tuesday night that I might have a bit of a look round and see if there was anything doing. You know, any nefarious goings-on. Bombs, you mean? I see. Mm. Carry on. Well, sir, first of all, uh, this was just after midnight, I met Mr. Hool. Mr. Hool, eh? Oh, that's interesting. What was he up to? He said his housekeeper was on the prowl, sir. On the prowl? Yes, sir. At first I took him to mean she was mixed up in the bombings, but then he explained that she tends to get, as he put it, amorous about once a fortnight. Oh, couldn't he just lock himself in his bedroom? No, sir. He said that only gets her more excited. So he has to go out for a couple of hours to give her time to wind down. Uh, I suppose we can accept that. Oh, yes, sir. Well, next I caught sight of this man walking rather furtively, I thought, towards the outskirts of town. So I followed very cautiously some distance behind. 
He walked on beyond the Chalmsbury Haulage Company, then down a little country lane and into a field where there was this large trailer caravan, which the man entered. Mm. Well, when I got over to the window, I could see a little gap in the curtains, so I peered in and there was this man taking his jacket off. Well, sir, it was when he started taking his trousers off that I realised that he was not so much a man as a woman. I see. You, uh, you didn't think it appropriate at that moment to make a discreet withdrawal? Well, I was about to, sir, when the man, uh, the, the lady, half turned toward the window and I was afraid that she'd see me if I made any move. So uh, you stayed where you were? Yes, sir. And uh, what happened next? She continued to remove her clothes, sir, having some difficulty with the strap of her brassiere. Oh. It was then the hairy arm I mentioned suddenly appeared and came to her assistance. Oh. Then, as her final garment was discarded, she made a turn toward the window. Full frontally. Yes, Leonard. sir. And I realised who the lady was. So you've enjoyed the presumably rare privilege of Chief Inspector Larch's view of matrimony. Yes, sir. And the identity of the hairy-armed mystery playboy. That remained a mystery, sir. Hilda Larch always was unpredictable like her mother. You, were. Uh, don't want me to write anything then, sir? Oh, God, no, Leonard. Not unless we want a libel action on our hands. Mr. Chairman, everybody in the town is getting very alarmed and anxious about these dastardly explosions. And I want to know what is being done in regard to putting whoever's responsible under lock and key. The detection of crime is, I believe, Councillor Linnit, the province of the police. Public safety is involved in this, Mr. Chairman. We have every right to chivvy the police if they're not being efficient in regard to protecting our ratepayers. We, the committee, cannot simply stand aside while the town is blown to bits. We could ask the police for a confidential report on the progress of investigation. Would that... Uh, no, Mr. Chairman, I don't think it would. There uh, are a lot of people who think the police here in Chalmsbury haven't made an arrest because... Uh, Somebody doesn't want an arrest. I think the chairman will have a fair idea of what I'm... Oh, no, he hasn't. You'd better explain that insinuation. Now, Mr. Chairman, I am not getting at you personally. But it's got to be said that Chief Inspector Larch is a member of your family. My personal relationships are no concern of this council. And this despicable attempt to drag them into this case is perfectly monstrous. Yeah. <laughs> the fact remains, a dangerous criminal... Perhaps a lunatic is at large in the town. Now, what I suggest, and I propose it formally, is that we approach the chief constable of the county and ask him to look into the whole affair. Charm, Chief Constable Heseldine here. How are you, old man? Good, good. Dogs all well? Fine. And Mrs. Chubb? Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Still, it's usually a pretty straightforward operation. Anyway, to get down to brass tacks, I want to borrow one of your Flaxborough men, one not known in Chalmsbury, and a cut above those layabouts in dirty raincoats who do nothing but harass bookies for free bets. A real detective, old man. Can you run to one? <laughs> yes, yes, of course, just pulling your leg. It's these Chalmsbury explosions you've probably heard about. Just received a deputation of civic dignitaries making allegations about their chief inspector, Larch. Not that I'd bother about that normally. One end of that lot is so like the other. It's a wonder when they take their hats off that they're not run in for indecent exposure. <laughs> yes. Mm, the worrying thing is, 
but I've recently been handed a confidential report of a considerable quantity of missing explosives from the Flaxborough Civil Defence Training Centre. And guess who the leading light of the Flaxborough Civil Defence Demolition Corps is? You've said it. Chief Inspector Larch. Chief Inspector Larch? Yes. My name's Purbright. Flaxborough CID. Oh. I expect the Chief Constable. Yes, of course, Mr. Purbright. I'd heard you were being loaned to us in our distress. Uh-huh. We are baffled, but I dare say you'll tie the thing up in a day or two. The chief's idea apparently is that uh, not being a local man, I might be useful as a... As a special investigator. <laughs> Sounds awful, doesn't it? But seriously, though, you don't want me cluttering up your office, so I thought I'd go snooping in the open air. Oh, you're free to snoop where you please, Burbright. You're only carrying out instructions, however goddamn stupid I happen to think them. Well, uh, the town's chock-a-block with lunatics. They'll natter and chatter for as long as you've a mind to listen. You'll get your criminal all right a dozen times over. I only hope you brought a cart. Tell me, Mr. Larch, what would be your own selected cartload? Well, go through them, shall we? Uh, my favourite is a cocky, sarcastic little goggle salesman called Hool. Unmarried, middle-aged, but perky. Likes taking the mickey. Out of local institutions, especially. Statues and memorials right up his street. Quite clever in his way, university degree and all that. Making bombs, no difficulty to him, I imagine. But hasn't this man's own shop been involved? Oldest trick in the world, self-inflicted injury. Mm. Motive? (laughs) Don't worry about motives in this town, old son. Sheer bloody-mindedness. Anyway, I told you he's got a down on monuments. Who next? Kibble, editor of the local rag. Finds life a bloody great joke. I wouldn't put it past him to help the fun along. Especially if it provided him with copy. Mm. Who else? Commissioner at the Rialto. Name of Grope. Grope? Walter Grope. Constant film viewing may have unbalanced an already unsteady mind. <laughs> and his hours of employment give him plenty of opportunity for nocturnal villainy. I see. And lastly, my father-in-law. Councillor Pointer. I've nothing specific against him. Nothing I can put my finger on. But he's hard to weigh up. For some reason, he's taken a violent dislike to a friend of mine called Biggerdike. Oh, Stan used to be a bit wild, certainly, but he's settled down now. All the same, the name is stuck, and Pointer knows that. He's doing his damnedest to get Biggerdike knocked off of this business. You think Mr. Pointer is trying to frame Biggerdike? <laughs> it's a bit far-fetched, isn't it? Far-fetched as hell, but you don't know Pointer. He takes a long time and goes the long way round if he wants to do anybody, but by God, he does them in the end. Well, there you are, Purbright. Enjoy yourself. And if one of our home-smoked maniacs blows your own bloody head off, don't blame me. Uh, enjoying the soup? Very tasty, thanks. My name's Payne. I'm your fellow lodger. How do you do? Well, I must say, Inspector, you don't look a bit like a policeman to me. And who says I'm a policeman? Our good landlady, Mrs. Crispin. She's very proud to have acquired you. Oh, oh dear, you aren't meant to be incognito, are you? Mm, Something like that, but it doesn't really matter. The communications in this town must be excellent. Mm. First rate. 
And yet there are some things that one simply cannot find out, apparently. Well, that depends what you want to find out. You are, I presume, following some specific line of inquiry here. After a fashion. Police, probe, mystery blasts. You really must not draw me into any indiscretions, Mr. Penn. Oh, but indiscretions are the currency in this town, Inspector. One is traded for another. You must be prepared to start somewhere. Is that an invitation? As we are to share one of Mrs. Crispin's semolina puddings, today being a Tuesday, we may as well recognize a bond of common tribulation and peril. Very well. Blasts are what I broke. You will have noticed, Inspector, that semolina pudding is not the only feature peculiar to Tuesdays. Yes. One Tuesday, however, the second, produced nothing. Perhaps there was no opportunity, or our bombardier otherwise engaged, detained him. Quite. Although you are aware of my occupation, Mr. Payne, it occurs to me that I don't know yours. I... I am a shopkeeper. Oh, really? How odd. Oh? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude. It's only that uh, the term is so seldom used nowadays. People seem to prefer to be known as confectioners, retailers, uh, merchandisers, or something like that. No, I suppose I could claim to be a jeweler. In fact, I merely wrap up manufactured articles and pass them over the counter. I keep a shop. That's the sum of it. A parasitic existence, but it uh, harms no one. That apparently negative virtue seems to have become rather precious these days. taking over the arrangements for the inquest on Mr. Biggerdyke, sir? Oh, no, Sergeant. That's Mr. Larch's province. I'm not sure I can claim to have anything more to do with the case now. Biggerdyke's dead. You will wait for the inquest, though, won't you, sir? I wouldn't miss it for anything. There's no question as to the verdict, I suppose. That Biggerdyke blew himself up in his caravan? Not really, sir. The evidence points that way, and also to his responsibility for the previous explosions. Is that what you believe, Sergeant? It's what everyone seemed to be expecting, sir. He was a bit of a card, you know, always up to queer tricks. Mm -hmm. But I must say I'm a little surprised myself. Bombs are tricky. They take intelligence. Bigger Dyke didn't strike me as the type. He wasn't especially bright. Well, clever, yes. But not up to anything really uh, high class, if you follow me. But that's not inconsistent with what happened. After three hits, his cleverness runs out and he boots. Boosh. In any case, there can hardly be two characters in a town this size running around with explosives. Mr. Larch said that, sir. Uh, maybe that's why I'm a bit doubtful about it all. However, I've no doubt the coroner will arrive at the same conclusion as yourself and Mr. Larch. I wouldn't say I'd arrived at any conclusion, Sergeant. Not yet. Now, Mrs. Biggerdyke. Do you know if your husband was interested in explosives at all? He never told me anything about his outside interests. He spent quite a bit of time in his workshop at the firm. 
And in his caravan behind the depot. He used that as an office. I never saw inside it. Can you tell me, Mrs. Biggerdyke, where your husband was on the nights of June the 3rd, 17th and 24th, all Tuesday nights? He went to Flux for every Tuesday night, to his club. Friend, Mr. Smiles put him up there for the night. I think it only fair to tell you, Mrs. Biggerdyke, that evidence will be given by Mr. Smiles that your husband did not stay there on any occasion during the past three months. Uh, would you care to comment on that? Only to say that I'm not in the least surprised. I take it you did not enjoy your husband's confidence in all respects. In no respect, whatever. I see. Now, one last point. Tuesday, June the 10th. Now, can you tell me where your husband was that night? In hospital. After his accident. He didn't come out till the Friday. Thank you, Mrs. Biggerdyke. I therefore conclude that the explosion occurred accidentally. As it was in Mr. Biggerdyke's caravan that the event occurred, and as he alone had access to that caravan, as has been established, one must presume that he alone was responsible for the explosive being there. From this I infer that Mr. Biggerdyke, who had deliberately given a false account of his whereabouts on the nights of the previous explosions, was responsible for those also, and that on the night of July 1st, he unintentionally caused the one which killed him. My verdict is accordingly death by misadventure. You are Mr. Purbright, one pint of keg. They're really good health. Ah, thanks. Cheers. Good. Uh, so it's all over then? Mm. It rather looks like it, Mr. Kibble. You'll be going back to Flax, brethren? Well, I thought I might hang on here for a few days. Mm. I've a little curiosity to learn a little more about the deceased. Quite a practical joker, I hear. They tell me it was Stan who got in here one night after closing time and all the handles off the beer pumps. <laughs> and then there was the beetle, of course, but you'll have heard about that. Beetle? No, I don't think I have. Oh, oh well, uh, Bigger Dyke's house is in a small village just outside town, right next to the parish hall. Mm. Uh, the hall's a scrappy place, but the rural district council use it for their meetings. Well, about uh, three years ago, they decided to put up an outside lavatory. Those RDC meetings are liable to go on all day, you know. <laughs> and uh, naturally, Bigger Dyke was pretty mad about this because the thing was right next to his garden, but he, he couldn't do anything about it. A couple of months later, at a meeting, I was there to report, I noticed that each councillor who came back from a trip to the gents was looking pale as hell, <laughs> worried to death, as if he'd seen a ghost. I was six of them in turn. <laughs> Mm. Well, later I heard that each of them went rushing around to his doctor the next day asking for a confidential checkup, complaining of a burning sensation when they passed water and terrified that they contracted an unmentionable disease. Oh. Well, the RDC <coughs> medical officer found next time he was at the parish hall that there was a little beetle stuck to the white porcelain just where it would be most tempting. Showed it to me, beautifully made. Oh, copper sold it to one. Yes, that's it. Mm. They spotted the bat fin coil under Biggie Dyke's edge. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody good job it didn't use the mains. <laughs> yeah. well, apart uh, from his jokes, what sort of life did he have? Uh, well, oddly enough, uh, pretty dull when you get down to it. Drinking, girls, rowing club. We've got quite a few like that here. 
You'd never believe the number of bald heads and pot bellies in the roaming mob. <laughs> One heave at an oar and they dropped dead. Mm-hmm. All tankards and totty tickling, old chap. Bloody desperate, if you ask me. Any idea where he might have acquired a taste for explosives? Civil defence, perhaps? Oh, he wasn't in that lot, no can't imagine. His firm had no connection with quarrying. Oh, I'd be surprised if it had. Mm. Mm, he handled mainly agricultural stuff with no quarrying for miles. You see my difficulty, Mr. Cabell, don't you? Oh, I do, yes. You're trying to trace the source of Bigger Dyke's explosives. Exactly. The authorities take a somewhat jaundiced view when someone appears to be in a position to stick free samples of high explosive all over the place. Did he have any uh, close friends at all? No, oh, couldn't say. Wait a minute, though. Um, male or female? Either. Oh, for God's sake, keep us to yourself, old chap, but uh, Bigger Dyke's caravan was no more an office than this pub. You probably guessed that. Yeah. But you will never guess who the totty was that Bigger Dyke played gypsies with. <laughs> Mrs. Chief Inspector Hector Larch. <laughs> Mr. Kevill, this little township deserves to be administered by the Sodom and Gomorrah <laughs> Joint Sewerage Board. I thought you'd like it. You're not pulling my leg, are you? Oh, no, no. My, my so-called reporter, Leonard, saw them together. Inadvertently, he claims. When was this? Uh, it was a Tuesday night. Oh, yes, it's the one old whose eye got blown up. Good God. Then Bigger Dyke was in his caravan when the thing went off. Well, why not? They all had time fuses anyway. Well, still, it does seem odd to start a bum ticking and then push off to a date with your totty. Yeah. Damn me, I'd, I'd want to stay and see the fun. Do you know Mrs. Larch? No, not well. She's old Pointer's daughter. Quite good-looking, but hard-boiled. Would Larch have known of his wife's relationship? God, no. If he did find out, he'd go up to Hilda, give her a nice smile, and then slowly pull her head off like a prawn. <laughs> you need to watch your step with Brother Larch. I will indeed. <laughs> Oh, by the way, uh, how are you getting on with old Pate and your dicks? Oh, rather nicely. <clears throat> An intelligent fellow. Yeah, I'm glad you think that. There was a time when Payne and Hall seemed absolutely brilliant. But over the years, one forgets. Talking of Hall, I can't quite fathom why he qualified for one of Bigger Dyke's infernal machines. Simple. It was Hall who caused Bigger Dyke's car smash. Uh-huh. Gave him a massive overdose of belladonna tincture in his, his eyes in return for some earlier trick so that Bigger Dyke couldn't focus properly. Rather a murderous joke. Well, rather ill-advised, shall we say. <laughs> there was no love lost between those two. Mind you, Hall would be very upset if he knew I'd let slip a confidence. It doesn't seem very important now the man's dead. Oh, now, what are you drinking Brandy, is it? Uh, my name's Pointer. Councillor Pointer. I'd uh, like a word with you, Mr... Perbright. Uh, you're the chap the Chief Constable sent over, aren't you? Oh, you needn't look coy, man. I know all about it. The fact is, I... I'm rather worried... About the bigger dyke, Kate? That comes into it, yes. But the affair's closed. You don't disagree with the verdict, do you? No, certainly not. We went as near as we decently could to telling Chief Inspector Larch that Bigger Dyke was the fellow we ought to be after. And uh, he acted on your advice? He questioned Bigger Dyke officially in front of a witness. 
quite sure he did his duty without prejudice. Prejudice occasioned by friendship? Yes. Did you approve of that friendship, Mr. Pointer? No, I did not. Biggerdyke was the last man in town a man in my son-in-law's position should have mixed with. Would you mind uh, telling me, sir, if your daughter was at all friendly with Mr. Biggerdyke? My daughter? Yes, sir. Mrs. Large. Both Hector and Hilda used to see him a good deal, I believe. Did you know that Mrs. Larch was seen to visit Biggerdyke's caravan on her own and late at night? No, I didn't know. Perhaps I should have a word with your daughter, sir. With Hilda? Damn it, old man. Are you snooping into Hector's family affairs just because you've heard some unsavory gossip? I think it's high time you told me exactly what you've been sent here to ferret out. Very well, sir. We wish to find out where Mr. Biggerdyke obtained his fireworks. You see, there are three disturbing things about this case. One is the disappearance from a civil defence store in Flaxborough of a quantity of explosive. The second is that Mr. Larch is a civil defence instructor with access to that store. And thirdly, Mr. Larch was a close acquaintance of Biggerdyke, a man we now know to have been addicted to blowing things up. But why on earth should Hector want to pass the stuff on to Biggerdyke, yeah. even if he did steal it? Well, it makes no sense. Your son-in-law is an expert in handling explosives. The Biggerdyke was not. But he couldn't resist spectacular jokes. It's conceivable that he may have been encouraged to dabble in what he didn't understand, in the hope he'd make a fatal mistake. But Hector would never do such a terrible thing. Not even if he learned of his wife's relationship with his friend? Certainly didn't suspect. You did, Mr. Pointer. I'm the girl's father, naturally. I... Uh... Did her mother know? Her mother? Good God, I've no idea she doesn't discuss things with me. I see. Yeah, but look, there was something I wanted to tell you before we got on to this business about Hilda. Mm -hmm. I can't help feeling it may have a connection with what you're hinting. Yeah. Last summer, about this time of year, a girl was knocked down and killed by Stan Biggerdyke in his sports car. Biggerdyke was pretty drunk. They arrested him, took him to the station where Hector took charge. By the time a doctor arrived, Biggerdyke was dead sober, and he got off at the assizes. A month or two later, I, I heard Biggerdyke in a pub pretty far gone, talking to Payne, the jeweller. Payne, old man, he said, if you ever get pulled in for being drunk, just ask for the bucket of Larch's luscious lallop. And you drew your own conclusions? I did. You see, uh, I knew that Hilda always made a big flask of strong black coffee for the nights Hector stayed at the station. Can you suggest why you should want to protect Biggerdyke? Well, he owed Biggerdyke money for one thing. Oh. Quite a lot, I believe. And Biggerdyke helped him socially and so on. He was generous enough to his pals, I'll say that for him. So you reject my rather fanciful theory that Mr. Larch may have been indirectly responsible for Biggerdyke's death? No, I, I don't reject it. He's capable of such a thing. And you're still convinced... Hector never found out about his wife. Well, I know this much. If he does find out, I don't give much for my girl's chances. That explosion in Biggerdyke's caravan, it, 
It could have been meant for her, too. How did the inquest go, Inspector? Uh, your move, by the way. Misadventure. All it could be, really. There couldn't have been much evidence, though. Oh, nothing direct, I grant you, Payne. It boiled down to a rejection of coincidence. Four explosions in one small town, and then Bigger Dyke's own reputation, of course. Not very legal. Oh. I should take a bishop if you move there. Oh. Did no one suggest why you've been doing these curious things? Everyone seemed to assume sheer bloody-mindedness in Inspector Larch's immortal words. Yeah. True. But he had specific motives as well, you know. Those I should like to know about. But what grudge did he bear the drinking fountain? <laughs> Not aesthetic, I assure you. Though that would have been understandable. No, the thing commemorated a Colonel Courtney Snell, who had in his time won an action for slander against Vigadike. Posthumous revenge, all right. And the statue? The onslaught of a drinking man upon a totem of teetotalism. Alderman Berry was a notable zealot, or bigot, according to taste. Bigadike had few principles, but he liked to proclaim the few he had spectacularly. And Mr. Hall's eye? Personal revenge for that rather nasty joke of the Belladonna tincture. It all seems logical. The question no one seems to be able to settle is where the man obtained his explosive. It appears I shall go back without an answer. Your move, old chap. Ah, so that's why they sent you, is it? I was wondering if you were MI5 or something. Kevil's uh -huh. convinced of it. There is a rumour of some explosive having disappeared from Flaxborough civil defence. Really? But the connection with Bigger Dyke seems very tenuous. Would it have been possible for the man to have manufactured it himself? Check, by the way. Hmm. Feasible, I imagine. Very dangerous, though. There may be something in my old textbooks that will help. They're a little out of date, but um, organic chemistry is less subject to fashion than physics. Ah. Now. Let me see. Yeah. Ah, well, simple enough in theory. Allow a mixture of nitric and sulfuric acids to act on ordinary glycerine and separate the oily liquid that rises. Well, there you have it. Nitroglycerine. Then even bigger dye. Ah, simple in theory. But the stuff is desperately unstable, remember. One good jolt and whoosh. Yes. Dynamite is safe to handle, surely. Isn't that um, nitroglycerin in another form? Oh, hang on a minute. <clears throat> yes. Yes, here we are. You absorb the nitroglycerin in something called kieselger. What's that? Well, no idea. Here it just says, an inert clay-like substance. Mm. And what about detonators? Could they be made at home? Oh, I could say offhand. The only detonating agent I know of is mercury fulminate. Mm. I don't know if it's still used nowadays. Ah, your move. Oh, never mind. It all sounds terribly unlikely. And from what I've heard of Bigger Dyke, I can't picture him tackling anything so complicated. We all have our unsuspected talents, Inspector. Ah, that's checkmate, I believe. Sorry about that. Fancy another one?
We were hoping, Purbright, that you'd be able by now to produce enough evidence either to eliminate Chief Inspector Larch entirely from your inquiries or, at the very worst, to prove his complicity beyond doubt. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, sir. I'm afraid I'm in no position to resolve the matter one way or the other. Hmm. Indeed, considering the eternally triangular situation Mr. Larch was involved in, one cannot entirely exclude the possibility of murder. This is exceedingly awkward, Purbright. Chief Constable, I don't care to see one of my officers under a cloud. That's no fault of yours, however. I'm only sorry that you find yourself in such invidious circumstances. I, uh, I wonder if Mrs. Larch could be prevailed upon to help. I don't know, sir. Of course, it is possible sometimes to have a confidential chat without giving offence or sowing suspicion, you know. If you did happen to meet Mrs. Larch under propitious circumstances, I'm sure you wouldn't permit false chivalry to blind you to her possible value as a witness. There is one thing I should like to know, sir. Has it occurred to anyone to ask Chief Inspector Larch about the explosive that's supposed to be missing? I don't think you quite understand, Purbright. National security is involved here. The whole thing is fearfully hush-hush. It's quite on the cards that the Home Office will come into it. Then Mr. Larch has not been questioned. Certainly not. The Civil Defence Commanding Officer was insistent on maximum secrecy. He was in intelligence during the war, you know. Very well up in this kind of thing. I still think you should tackle Mr. Larch directly, sir. Aren't you being a little direct yourself? You might put it that way, sir. You feel you'd rather not proceed with this investigation, is that it? Not in the role of a sort of security policeman. It goes very much against the grain, sir. Ah, just as you like, Purbright. I should be the last to expect you to undertake anything you felt to be unethical. Meanwhile, you'd better stay in Charlesbury for a couple more days to give the impression you're clearing up loose ends. I don't want coroners to get the idea they've only got to say the word for the police to go skipping off like hired ponies. Guess who saw it happen, Inspector? Saw what happen, Campbell? Stan Bickerdyke's uh, Walpurgis night. Hmm. Who did? Leonard. <laughs> That's why I asked you round. I thought you'd like to hear the story. Yes, I would. But why didn't he go to the police? Watson be third degree by large Chalmsbury's very own Inspector Clouseau. He'd, he'd probably ended up on a murder charge. That's true. Well, let's have him in then. Uh, Leonard. Yes, Mr. Cabell. I, I want you to tell this gentleman what you saw on the night Stan Bigadike blew himself out. Oh, yes, sir. Take a seat, lad. Thank you, sir. Now, tell us all about it. Well, I was out that night and... Happened to be in the area of Mr. Biggerdyke's caravan. Happened to be, Leonard? It's a bit out of the way, isn't it? Yes, sir, but I thought, well, in, in case anything was going on, it being a Tuesday, you see. You decided to revisit the scene of Mrs. Larch's earlier indiscretion? Yes, sir. Mm. Uh, educational research, uh, what's this, Leonard? Sir? Never mind, lad. On with the story. Well... When I arrived at the caravan, there was no one about, so I thought I'd take a look through the window. There was a small table just below where Mrs. Larch's handbag had been the week before, only this time there was a sort of little box. Then I noticed that one of the window panes was broken. It looked as if a stone or something had been thrown through it. It was then I heard a man's footsteps, so I ducked down and jumped into the ditch nearby. He unlocked the caravan door and went inside. I waited about couple of minutes and then I decided to see what he was doing. 
I stood up and then it happened. A blinding flash and this tremendous bang. I was blown right off my feet and for ages I couldn't see anything or understand what had happened. Then, as I was getting up to run off, I stumbled over something in the long grass. It was Mr. Biggerdyke's head, sir. You say there was a hole in one of the caravan windows? Yes, sir. Was it the kind of window that opens? Huh? You know, hinged at the top so that you push it outward from the bottom? Yes, it was, sir. So it would have been possible for someone outside to have put a hand through the hole in the glass, unfastened the little bar thing at the bottom and pulled the window open? No reason why not. Hmm. And this uh, little table with the box? Uh, a parcel, do you think, in paper and string? I didn't notice if it was wrapped up. Mm. I could only make out the shape, like a shoebox. A shoebox? Mm. I see. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, by the way, what do you make of this? Yeah. It went in last week's issue. What's it supposed to be? It's an uh, in memoriam. Uh, no name or address, but the money came with it and there seemed no harm. Mm -hmm. And now I'm not so sure. Look at the date. July 1st. Yes, the day of Bigger Dyke's death. You think he sent it to himself? A suicide proclamation? What, Stan? Poetry. But do you suggest there's a connection? Well, there's something odd about it. Uh, those first two lines. Mm -hmm. The thirst that from the soul doth rise, doth ask a drink divine. Well, that's from a song, a drink to me only. Yes, of course. Oh, Grope figured that one. But the uh, rest doesn't belong. Hmm. You don't happen to have any verse anthologies handy, do you? Uh, not on the premises, exactly, no. Uh, but I, I could send Leonard round to the library. Good idea. Uh, Leonard, off you go. Yes, sir. Now, why those two lines, I wonder? First? Hmm. A spiritual first, perhaps? Longing, regret for someone dead? Drink divine, though. What would that represent, do you think? Brandy. <laughs> I doubt it. Um, vengeance, perhaps? That would tie in with the second half. There'll be a dark parade of tassels and of coaches soon. Yes. Notice the future tense. Threatening, isn't it? Damn me! If I haven't only just got it, a funeral. Oh, yes, certainly. Oh. Tassels and coaches. An evocative phrase. Uh, do you know anyone called Celia? No. Why? Everyone thinks of the song as Drink to Me Only, but its actual title is To Celia. Who is it? Do you think you might work back through your files and see if anyone called Celia died on a July the 1st? Well, we can have a bash, provided a death notice was put in at the time. You wanted to see me, Mr. Lodge? Ah, uh, yes, Burbright. I've a message for you from the Chief Constable. Oh? I myself don't quite appreciate its significance, but no doubt you will understand all. He asked me to tell you that the explosive he was worried about has turned up. Or rather, was never really missing. I see. It seems that the Civil Defence CO had several cases moved to another store so that he could park his golf clubs there. He'd forgotten all about it. How very remiss of him. <laughs> Foreign games, eh, Mr. Purbright? You never told me you shared the Chief's concern over that explosive. Now I suppose you'll have to, uh, what's that word? Reorientate your theories. Any theories of mine about Digger Dyke's death, I imagine that's what you're referring to, are quite without importance. 
And now that this explosive affair, if I may so call it, has finally been exploded, I shall no longer interfere with your work, Mr. Lowe. Oh, you're not leaving us. Oh, what a shame. I was just growing accustomed to your face. I'm afraid I must. Besides, I'm sure you'll be able to handle a little local murder case without my help. Murder? Are you sure that's what happened? Virtually. The explosive was deposited in Biggerdyke's caravan through a window. And what's more, the murderer more or less announced his or her intentions in the in memoriam column of the local paper three days before. Uh, Mr. Purbright, would you consider staying on here a little longer? Why do you ask? I don't trust myself to find out the truth. You see... I'm personally involved. Not in the way the Chief Constable seems to think, though. I happen to know that my wife had arranged to meet Biggerdike at his caravan the night he died. There was nothing to stop her going. I was away from home. But she didn't go. And I understand she's usually pretty punctilious about that sort of appointment. You see what I'm driving at, don't you? Hilda knew what was going to happen. She had a hand in it. I don't think so, Mr. Lowe. Hey, my in God's name, wasn't she there when the thing went off? Why the hell isn't she dead, too? It's my belief, Mr. Larch, that the solution to this case lies with a girl named Celia. But... Celia? Who the hell's she? Was, Mr. Larch. She's dead. Chief Inspector Larch and I are very interested in Celia, Mr. Kevill. One might almost say we have high hopes of her. Any luck? Uh, yes, uh, it was in last year's. Oh, good. Uh, July the 1st, suddenly, Celia Grope, aged 22 years. A girl, Biggerdyke, knocked down in his car, am I right, Mr. Larch? Yes. We did our best with the manslaughter charge, but it didn't stick. He always was a lucky devil. Luckier than Celia. As you say, Mr. Purbright, luckier than Celia. Oh, and uh, one more thing, uh, Purbright. Uh, Leonard tracked down that second half of the quotation. Here. Hmm. Hmm. Are you familiar with the works of Emily Dickinson, Mr. Larch? No. Well, she wrote, among other things, a poem entitled There's Been a Death, in which the following lines occur. There'll be a dark parade of tassels and of coaches soon. It's easy as a sign. The intuition of the news in just a country town. Our man left out the final line. Yes, admirably <laughs> done, isn't it? Why'd you say that? The force of the quotation is immensely increased by what is left unsaid. The intuition of the news in just a country town. It sums up the whole purpose of this extraordinary notice. Yet the murderer had the subtlety to hide the crux of his message from all but those prepared to grapple with intellectual literary competition. It sounds like one of our culture vultures to me. I told you they were the ones to watch. Cool was my bet, but I suppose Grope is odds-on now. Is he cultured? Oh, he scribbles poetry in his spare time, doesn't he, Kevill? Yes, yes, he writes most of our more conventional in memoriams for those who can't or won't write their own. Well, this doesn't sound like his brainchild, though it's, it's far too sophisticated. Oh, he may have been working on it for months, scheming to get his revenge. Yes. After all, he was the girl's father. Yeah, the motive is strong enough, all right. 
But what about the elaborate framing of Big Attack? That indicates an altogether exceptional mind. <laughs> Hardly called growth exceptional. Mm. Peculiar, perhaps. You're reading too much clever stuff into it, Purbright. Grope's been lucky, that's all. Uh, whoever removed Biggerdyke quite consciously built a number of traps, or defences in depth, if you like, in which the investigation would be tied up and rendered harmless, or even turned away against someone else. The first one of framing Biggerdyke almost succeeded in ending the matter. The only danger was that your wife, Mr. Large, oh, it's it, it, all right. Mr. Kebble is already in possession of the facts through sources of his own that your wife would tell the truth about those Tuesday nights. The odd word, of course, that she'd keep quiet, as indeed she has. But even if Mrs. Larch had cleared Bigger Dyke, and here is trap number two, she would have immediately and unwittingly proved the perfect decoy for shifting suspicion onto the man with the best reason for wishing her lover dead. Another man, by curious coincidence, who is a regular Tuesday night absentee and a man expert in the use of explosives. Yourself, Mr. Large. My God, we better get the cunning bastard pulled in. Fortunately for us, Mr. Large, or should I say for you, a piece of criminal vanity, that in memoriam, so neatly spotted by Mr. Kevill here, gave the game away. It's time, I think, for an interview with Mr. Grope. We should just be able to catch him between performances. You mustn't start the queue inside the cinema, gentlemen. You are patrons, I suppose. No, Mr. Grobe, we are not. I think you know who I am. You're Chief Inspector Larch. Well done. And this is Chief Inspector Purbright. Yeah. Now, you'll kindly do your duty by answering a few questions. What kind of questions? All kinds. And if you think mine are rough, just wait until my colleague here gets started. <laughs> now, Grobe, how long have you worked here? Fourteen years, or very near. What sort of work did you do before? Tool room fitting. Precision engineering, eh? That's all I'm going to say. Oh, he's fly, this one. You followed the point about engineering? Eh? Those bombs could be. Now, let's be sensible, eh? Can you remember what you were doing on the night of Tuesday, July the 1st? No. The night Mr. Biggerdyke was killed? You were seen out in the town, you know, quite late. Come on, Grope, why don't you come clean? How about telling us where you were? Home. Before that. Go away. Oh. He wants us to go away, Inspector. I wonder why. Well, I think... You had a strong grudge against Bigger Dyke, didn't you? You hadn't forgotten how your daughter meant her death exactly a year ago. You needn't be ashamed of your feelings, Grope. It's understandable. Your own flesh and blood. Well, it seems to me that... Flesh what? and blood? Celia wasn't my flesh and blood. Oh, you've got it all mixed up. I suppose now you're going to tell us she wasn't your daughter. She was my daughter, all right, but not my flesh and blood. We adopted her. I've never pretended otherwise. No, of course not, Mr. Grope, but 22 years is a long time and things get taken for granted. Would you mind telling me who Celia's natural parents were? Yes, I would. Things like that are confidential. But there are records, you know, we can find out. You could save us a bit of time, that's all. All right, then, if you're so keen to know. Celia was put out for adoption by Mr. and Mrs. Pointer straight after she was born. So you might say, Mr. Larch, that she was your sister-in-law, mightn't you? This isn't going to be easy for you or your mother, Mrs. Larch. No, of course not. Interviews with policemen hardly ever are, are they? You may have heard from Mr. Larch that further inquiries were being made into the death of Mr. Biggerdyke. No. Oh, I thought he might have mentioned it. No matter. The point is that... Uh, 
You and uh, Mrs. Pointer here may be able to help us. Mother will be pleased to do what she can. We have this notion, you see, that uh, some connection could exist between the death of a girl called Celia Grope and that of Mr. Biggerdyke. Do you know anyone called Celia Grope, Mother? No, Inspector. It seems she doesn't. But you did, didn't you, Mrs. Larch? I remember the name. Killed in a street accident, wasn't she? You didn't know the girl, Mrs. Pointer? Celia Grope was an adopted child. We know that much. It was a simple matter to ascertain her natural parentage. I'll tell you this in case you think I came here to fish for information. The facts have been landed, so to speak. All I ask is a little assistance in weighing them up. You are a very mysterious and devious policeman. What has all this to do with us? I had hoped painful revelations would not be required. You, Mrs. Pointer, know perfectly well what I'm talking about. If your daughter, Hilda, doesn't know, don't you think it would be kinder to tell her yourself? It's over 20 years. Did you have to drag it all up now? There seemed no point in telling you, dear. Celia never knew. I tried to think of her as having been born dead, but of course I couldn't. It was... I take it you and father had some compelling reason for this extraordinary arrangement. Your father thought... He, he said it would be better... Was the adoption arranged because your husband knew he was not the child's father? I'm sorry, I... Have you anything else to ask, Inspector? Yes. I should like to know the name of Celia's father. I, I can't tell you that. Please believe that this is not an, an idle or impertinent inquiry. The matter is important, perhaps urgent. Is he still alive? Yes. Oh, yes. Living here in town? Had he maintained a relationship with Celia over the years? I mean, not as father and daughter, but uh, an, an affectionate relationship? He used to see her, I believe. They were fond of each other? Oh, yes. Won't you tell me his name? Certainly not. I think that's enough, Inspector. Very well. Thank you, Mrs. Pointer. This way, Inspector. Why couldn't they have told me? There's so much I can't put right in my mind. That man who killed Celia. Bigger died. Yes. I let him make love to me. I see. You think that Celia's father... Murdered. Executed, you mean? That probably is the better word. I'm glad Mother said no more. Goodbye, Inspector. Oh, just one thing, Mrs. Larch. The night Pickerdyke was killed, why did you stay away from his caravan? I had a telephone call from civil defence, he said, that my husband had finished early and was on his way home. 
There must have been some mistake. He arrived the following day, as usual. The voice on the phone. Absolutely unidentifiable, I assure you. But I liked it. I liked it tremendously. Well, Mr. Purbright, have you found poor Stanley's bloody murderer yet? Certainly. He's your mother-in-law's lover. What? <laughs> Former lover, I should have said, of course. Yeah, I should hope so. Still, that doesn't take you much further, does it? Our filing system doesn't run to records of the ex-boyfriends of the town's middle-aged ladies. We may not need records. Memories are pretty long and retentive in a town like this. Retentive in more than one sense. They don't open up in the name of the law, believe me. How old would Mrs. Pointer have been 24 years ago? Oh, 30-ish. Hmm. Promiscuous? Oh, come off it, man. You've seen her. Perhaps not. All the better for us. You knew this girl Celia, I suppose? Only by sight. Would you say she showed any resemblance to anyone in particular? Yes. I realise now that she was remarkably like my wife. Oh, that's understandable. Anyone else? Anyone unusually tall, for example? Tall? Whoever stuck those bombs on the statue and that shop sign must have had tremendous reach. And no short man could have climbed the park railings to get at the fountain, either. What about a ladder? A box, even? Oh, too noticeable for the main streets on summer nights. They were neatly done jobs. A quick approach, a quick departure. No messing. Mm, a principle worth emulating. You know, Lodge, there is somebody in town, somebody I've met since my arrival in Chalmsbury, whose features and mannerisms your wife Hilda reminded me of very strongly. And it wasn't Councillor Pointer. You mean... My wife is also... Yes, I do. <laughs> the longer I continue this case, the less I want to catch the man I'm supposed to be chasing. Practically everybody else in town seems content to allow the false interpretation of Bigger Dyke's death to stand as the official record. I don't see why I shouldn't be. A man is dead, you know. Murdered. Some people might say Celia Grope was murdered too, Inspector. Is indeed, Mrs. Crispin. I'm just doing your tea. Fish cake. Very nice, too. There's a copy of the Charles Free Chronicle in the hall, if you like to glance through it. Yeah, thank you, I will. There's a very nice picture about Mr. Mulvaney on the front page. Mm -hmm. He's won some award or other, it says, for service to the cause of Anglo-Irish relations or something like that. I think that's wonderful, don't you? Especially in these troubled times. Oh, yes, indeed. Mr. Mulvaney, pictured here in the projection room of the Rialto Cinema, where he's worked for the past 12 years. Of course. Has Mr. Payne come in yet, Mrs. Crispin? I didn't hear him if he had. Payne? Hey there. <sighs> Mrs. Crispin? Yes, Mr. Fairbright? Didn't Mr. Payne used to have a framed photograph of a little girl by his bedside? That's right, he did. Pretty little thing she was. Taken in the projection room of the Rialto, wasn't it? Yes, I do believe it was, now you mention it. Was she a uh, niece or something of that kind? 
No, she wasn't. It's funny, really, but she was Mr. Grope's little girl. Mr. Payne was ever so fond of her, he was. Well, it's not there now. That's funny. No, Mrs. Crispin. Not funny. I'm rather afraid it may be tragic. Are you sure of your facts, Purbright? I don't think there's any doubt about it, Larch. After Mrs. Crispin's revelations, I checked through his books. The complete works of Emily Dickinson, with the relevant poem marked. And then I looked up the word Kieselgur. Uh, Kieselgur, or infusional earth, as it is known in the jewellery trade, used as a polishing agent, also an ingredient of dynamite. What's your next move, then? Well, it might be as well if I waited here for him. Meanwhile, you might like to see if he's still at his shop. A search warrant wouldn't come amiss, incidentally. Why? There could be stuff there you'll need in evidence, chemicals and so on. I hope you're not letting me in for an almighty cock-up. Oh, I hope so, too. Oh, by the way, do you remember where it was Bigger Dyke ran the girl down? Of course. Watergate Street. Quite near Payne's shop. He never came forward as a witness, but it was hardly relevant at the time, was it? Not at the time, no. Oh, good. It's Sergeant Werfel speaking this end, sir. Uh, what is it, Werfel? Just to say that Mr. Payne is not at his shop, sir, and also that at first glance your surmise about chemicals and so on may be correct, sir. Thank you, Werfel. That's very good of you. Uh, Mr. Payne isn't with you, I suppose, sir. Uh, Mr. Large asked me to inquire. No, Werfel, he's not. If he were, I should have said so. Quite, sir. Logic is a great help, even in these days. Oh, uh, I thought you'd be interested to know that wherever Mr. Payne is, he hasn't taken his car. Really? No, sir. It's outside his shop. It's quite an old-fashioned model with what they call a sunshine roof. A sliding panel in the top. I mention this because it explains something I know has been puzzling you. Really, Wilford? Then what is that? It's quite clear that Mr. Payne was able to fix his explosive device on the statue and shop sign by driving right up to the target and standing up on the driving seat through the roof. It wouldn't take a minute. Then he could sit down and drive off, all unbeknown. He could use the same method for the park railings too, Sergeant. Undoubtedly, sir. Well, I'll give you a call if there are any developments at this end, sir. Thank you, Wilford. I'll look forward to it. Thank you, sir. Purbright? Hello? It's Payne here. Oh. Yes, Mr. Payne. Look, I, I rather feel I owe you something. The note seemed awfully impersonal. Where are you speaking from, Payne? Well, that doesn't matter, does it? Mrs. Chris Payne? You can hear me all right, I suppose. Yes, yes, I can hear you very well. Yes. Uh, Mrs. Crispin? Yes, Mr. Pilbright? Go next door. Phone the police. And tell them to trace the location of the kiosk calling Charmsbury 4116. Hurry now. What was that, Payne? I said I don't think I ever really wanted to get away with it. All that elaboration. I can't think why I bothered. It was rather well done. The notice in the paper was silly, wasn't it? I'm rather ashamed of it now. Pure exhibitionism. Intellectual arrogance. Criminals are supposed to find that kind of thing irresistible. Does justice become a crime when it's put on a 
do-it-yourself basis, Inspector? I, I don't know. It's better to leave the meeting out of justice to the law, Mr. Payne. And when the law fails to do it, what then? I don't know either. You know all about Celia by now, I suppose? A certain amount. There was that photograph in your room. Old Grope took it a long time ago. He let me have a print. He was always very decent to us both. He used to send Celia along to the shop on some specious errand or other so that I could keep on seeing her. Was it you who phoned Hilda Larch on the night Bigger Dyke died? Yes, of course. It seemed the best means of keeping her away. You see, she was mine, too. Yes, I thought so. There's a distinct resemblance. Oh, do you think so? Well, I'm glad. Look, old chap, I really shall have to go now. There's a car coming, and I'm fairly sure it's one of yours. Uh, well, where are you going? What are you going to do? Do, old chap? Uh, something entirely appropriate, don't you worry. Where are you? Opposite the cemetery, of course. Where else? Bump in the Night was adapted for radio by Matthew Walters from the novel by Colin Watson. Chief Inspector Purbright was played by John Pullen, Chief Inspector Larch by Michael Kilgareth, and Sergeant Werple by Edward Kelsey. Mr. Keppel, Rolf Lefever, Mr. Payne, James Thomason, Mr. Hool, Malcolm Hayes, and Mr. Grope, Anthony Higginson. Councillor Pointer was Godfrey Kenton, Leonard, Brian Hewlett, the Chief Constable, William Fox, and Mrs. Hilda Larch, Shearer Grant. Stan Biggerdyke, Harding, and the coroner were played by Ronald Herdman. Mrs. Courtney Snell and Mrs. Biggerdyke by Yvette Reese, Mrs. Pointer and Mrs. Crispin by Betty Bascom, and Councillor Linnett and Mulvaney by Sean Barrett. Bump in the Night was produced by Harry Catlin.